Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School here, or Sunday Bible Study, Sunday School, however you want to phrase that. Um, great day out. I appreciate uh, everybody coming out. I just got back from a trip down to see my parents in Atlanta, Georgia, so flew in last night, so I'm still kind of getting oriented. Um, so if I, if I drift a little bit today, just bear with me. I'll, I'll be all right. Um, but speaking of drifting, if you don't mind, I'd actually like to open with a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll start with uh, the study. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the many wonderful things that you provide for us. And again, Father, we ask you uh, for us to, to meditate on the word that you have provided for us, allow us to understand what you have prepared for us, allow us to put in our hearts and minds, let us, let us understand what you want us to understand, uh, not the way man has been trying to interpret, but how you want us to interpret with the spirit that you have provided for us. Father, allow us to have a uh, good open conversation, good discussion, but most importantly, Father, we ask that this discussion lifts us closer to you, uh, closer to your spirit and your truth. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, I've got, I think, two more classes. So this class I'm borrowing a little bit from a class that I used that I, I'm teaching on Sun Tzu, and we had a class last time about how Sun Tzu trained the, the forces, uh, the concubines, if you remember that, and how Sun Tzu kind of walks through the training process and got people ready to fight. So Sun Tzu wrote a lot of interesting things about how people fight, and again, he, this was several thousand years ago, so he, he, he's basing it strictly off of human uh, psychology. And one of the things that we have to deal with in, in combating things is fear. And when it comes to fear, Sun Tzu has this observation. He says, if we do not wish to fight, we can prevent the enemy from engaging us, even though the lines of our encampment are merely traced out on the ground, i.e. they're just vapors. All we need to do is throw something odd and unaccountable their way. So, case in point, um, if you remember World War II, there was a lot of back and forth going on in Europe, and, and Germany just had its way with all of Europe uh, up until the U.S. got involved. And even with U.S. involvement, Germany pretty much had a, a, a locked down hold on France. And the Europeans, well, the Allies, we're trying to find a way to break that, that hold that Germany had in France, uh, because the only way to do it was through sea, and a naval invasion or an amphibious assault on France was going to be pretty problematic, because the coastlines weren't that great. There were only a few places to really get across and do what you needed to do. And Germany had a pretty strong defense all along the coast, because that was where they knew the attack would have to come. And so the Allies kind of worked it out, and they were trying to figure out how to do it, and they were trying to figure out which beachhead to go across. And, and if you remember uh, D-Day, they, they had several beachheads, Normandy, Omaha, et cetera. But they knew that if the Germans put a lot of resistance, a lot of forces on any one of those areas, it would be a disaster. And so trying to figure out what to do and what to do. Well, ironically enough, there was one general who scared the Germans, especially Hitler, out of his mind. Now, I got to tell you, I have a healthy respect for things that fly. I have a healthy respect for spiders. Snakes create an unnatural terror in me like nobody else. I cannot see a snake and, and think that it's a good thing. It just, 
it strikes the, a primordial fear in me that just causes me to lose my mind. Patton had this effect on Hitler because Hitler's best general, Rommel, could not, could not beat Patton. And that scared Hitler. So we set up a ruse. Patton was going to invade at a place called Pass de Calais. And the Germans got wind of this ruse, and the Europeans or the Allies put a significant amount of effort in creating this ruse, false radio traffic, etc. And they had the entire army, most of the army was going to come across the Pass de Calais, and there was going to be a feint at a place called Normandy, and there was going to be a pretend assault on a place called Omaha Beach. But the real assault was going to be in Pass de Calais. Because Hitler was so afraid of Patton, he put easily 60% of his defensive forces in and around that area, trying to prevent Patton from getting across. Even after Normandy, even after the invasion started on June 4th, Hitler would not move his army out of Pass de Calais because he was convinced that it was nothing more than a ruse, that all of the activity going on was just a freak because Patton was going to take the army and Patton was going to lead the real assault in Pass de Calais. Patton didn't have a you know, he had a clerk and he had a chauffeur and he had a couple of people who were assigned to him, but other than that, it was it. That was kind of because Patton messed up. If you've ever seen the movie, I won't spoil it for you, but, but Patton kind of made a few generals mad and so they, they put him on the sidelines. But I think there was more to it. The strategic use of fear is basically what enabled the Allies to get a quick landing on the beach hold and then move into France very quickly. So, how does fear affect us as Christians? How does fear... And, and I want to cut a fine line between respect and fear. Respect is when you know something is dangerous and you take these suitable precautions. Fear is when you have an illogical, irrational response to something that is way beyond the prudent measures needed to deal with that particular problem. So is that, is that a good definition between respect and fear? So how does fear impact us as Christians? What are things, what are things that fear causes? Uh, okay, I'm going to get a, a microphone here, but you had... Weakens our faith, yes. Okay, it, and we got a comment right back here. It allows, it affects our decision-making choices that we make based on a possible future that currently does not and may never exist. Right. It clouds our judgment. It causes our faith to be weak because we start seeing things that really aren't there. The, the, the future, the probability, the likelihood of that happening is so remote, our faith should be able to deal with that small probability of likelihood or not at all. But unfortunately, it's the combination of the potential outcome and the fear dampening our faith that causes us to have these weird reactions. And we're just like, wait a minute, what's going on there? Now, is fear something that's taught in the Bible? Do we have examples of people who are strong, just giants in the Word of God who have dealt with fear or who have been, had a problem with fear? Absolutely. Alan in the back. Peter, okay, Peter had a tremendous amount of fear at certain points, but he was such a courageous individual at others, and we were like, wait a minute, 
How is Peter going to deny Christ three times? Peter's, I mean, that's just so not like Peter. But at that moment, in his doubt, fear crept in and just totally iced him up like a, like a cucumber. He just could not move and couldn't think through things. Later, he overcame his fear, and he, he was restored in the faith. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. And this is a case where fear absolutely paralyzes one of the giants of the Old Testament, Elijah. And if you've read the story up to this point, Elijah has just come off of a Super Bowl, Final Four victory, national championship. I mean, he just like waylaid the entire army of Baal. Not him, but he witnessed it. He prayed to God for God to do this, and God answered his prayer. And so right after this huge victory that God performs through Elijah on the mountain, we have this scenario. So Ahab, come, Ahab returned and told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Where Jezebel sent So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, May the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that as one of them. Elijah became afraid and ran for his life. When he left for Bathsheba, in Judah, he left a servant there, and we have the rest of the, so, I mean, here you have this, like I said, Elijah is one of my heroes. I, I love the way Elijah deals with things. He's, he's got a very straightforward, no-nonsense kind of approach to things. But what, what's going on with Elijah and Jezebel? Any thoughts? I mean, where, what is that? What's going on with Elijah at this point? He's just come off of wiping out the prophets of Baal, and now there's this. Yeah, this was the after he had the fire and the prophets, and yes. the Lord sent down and consumed the stones in the water, and yep. then he went and slew like a hundred prophets, and so he was making trouble. He was making trouble. He had just come off with this huge high, but then Jezebel says, hey, I, I'm going to get you. And then Elijah turns tail and runs like a coward. What happened? Did, did Elijah suddenly get enlightened on something? What do you think? He forgot. He forgot. He forgot God was with him. He let, the, he let this challenge of Jezebel overpower his confidence. There's, there was something about Jezebel he saw how Jezebel handled Ahab. He knew that Jezebel was going to do what she could. And this was something that Elijah didn't know how to deal with himself. Elijah knew how to deal with the Baal prophets, right? You let God deal with the Baal prophets and God will take them out. This became a personal thing for Elijah with Jezebel. Right here. So another aspect of this is, you know, while God was with him, him as a person looking around, he was the only one, the only person, human being there, standing up for what was right. Right. Which is very scary in and of itself. 
and and so after it's done it's it's kind of like you know it comes back to him he he remembers oh you know i'm the only person out here doing this he forgets that god's god's there with him but in in that human aspect of him that fear kind of overtakes him and he feels alone he feels alone and now because jezebel is after him does jezebel fight fair no jezebel fights dirty but she fights to win and so Elijah knows this, and so that confidence that he had going against all the prophets of Baal, you can see the prophets of Baal, right? It, it's, a, it's a very physical thing. I know these people, I can see them, we're out here, I know who the enemy is. They can't be sneaky, they, they aren't going to behave in an unexpected fashion. I know how the prophets of Baal are going to work, and I know God is going to deal with that situation. But Jezebel throws something unexpected Elijah's way. I'm going to get you through my sneaky methods. And that scares Elijah because he's not sure God can deal with those sneaky ways. Comment right here. Hold on just a second here. Um, Carrie's got to. Okay. Um, I see it a little differently. Okay. Um, what happened with Elijah was God told Elijah to speak with Ahab mm -hmm. and to, you know, um, he, he directed Ahab to do to do these things. Now, we don't we don't have in Scripture exactly the words that God spoke to him about it. But what we do have is there's a there's a sense that it was a mission that God had put him on. And also there's a second thing that's going on, too. Um, Obadiah, who was uh, the messenger for, from the king. Yep had secretly been hiding a lot of the prophets because Jezebel had been killing them off. Right. And these are prophets of God. And so Elijah does God's will and uh, it's, it's over a long period of time. It's not like a short period of time this is happening. So there's, there's a couple of things going on here. One is Elijah is exhausted. He is, yes. And you know, when you're exhausted, you become a coward <laughs> in a lot of instances. The second thing that's going on is uh, God didn't speak to him about what Jezebel's response was going to be. So he had no idea if she accomplished it or not, because she had been successful killing the prophets. There's no, there's no reason why she wouldn't be able to kill him either. Exactly. So we got these two things happening. He's tired, and he doesn't know quite what God's going to do in the situation. Right. He's not sure how God is going to deal with this. Yeah. And because he's not sure what God's going to do, Elijah does the natural thing and think, well, I've got to do something about this. We see this in Moses. I mean, we see it all throughout. I mean, Saul being demoralized by fear, um, Adam's guilt by, uh, for his disobedience, David's guilt from his past. All of, these, all of these things are when we lose our faith and we take our eyes off of God dealing with our problems and we go, I have to now take I have to deal with this myself. Right. So we. Yeah, I don't think all the time it's a matter of being afraid. It's you know we could be afraid too. I mean that's that's probably natural, but sometimes God will not just uh, protect us from what's happening. He'll tell us to run, like Jesus said. You have trouble in the city, go to the next. Right. So I don't quite see um, 
yes, I do believe Elijah was afraid. I do believe Elijah ran because he's afraid, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's cowardice that is happening here. I think there's, there's something else going on. Okay. Um, all right, fair enough. I mean, I, I think we're both on, on a, a decent track. Either it was cowardice or prudent thought for, for Elijah to, to, to leave town and, and depart the area. But having just come off of this overwhelming victory over Baal and all of Baal's prophets, one would think that Elijah might be ready to say, hey, you know, Jezebel, it's time for you to go. And ask God for, hey, what, God, what do you think I ought to do about this? And the prudent thing might have been to pray about that. But like you said, I think Elijah had a lot of things. He was tired. Um, he was hit with something he didn't expect. Or he was, she veiled a threat that she could do things, and she had the power to make that happen. And she wasn't going to let it happen. Or she could have made it happen in a way that Elijah didn't know what was going to happen. So the, the key is, when Elijah was confronted with something that he himself didn't have an answer for, Elijah had to, he had to remove himself from the situation. And he did seek God. He did pray, Lord, you know, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to handle this? And God kind of came back and said, look, Elijah, I've had your back the whole time. Well, let, let's, let's, let's go back and let's take care of this problem together. So I've got a friend of mine who is, is deathly afraid of bees. Just... I, out of her mind, scared to death of bees. And I guess it was around 20 years ago, um, she was backing out of the driveway and a bee flew into the car. And it, it total panic, lost track of what she was doing, focusing on the bee, and the car ended up doing a U around the front yard and smacked into the front of the house. While, while she was focused on this little bee, she ended up doing a lot of damage to the front yard and, and the front of the house. But that's the kind of thing that happens when we, when we allow our, our eyes to be taken off of God. We start thinking about how are we going to deal with this instead of how is God going to deal with this. And a lot of times we start thinking about, well, the only thing I can do is move away from the danger, uh, step aside, do something that's, that's not quite as productive. Comment, yes. You know, I was just going to comment about the Elijah thing. Um, sometimes, and, and it just seems to happen time and time again, whenever you've done something great or shown faith in God at that high moment in your life, the devil seeks the opportunity to, to bring doubt in your mind. Um, just applying to us today. You see, Job was doing great. He was a faithful man, all of that. That was like, well, you know, let me test him. Yep. Um, and so, yes, I do believe that he was he was fearful. I think it was like, I've done this great thing. Yes, now I'm done. It's all going to be great. And then, no, he seeks his life. And the truth is, with prophets and kings, they've always been a target. And so he knows he's a target. He's done this great thing. He's thinking he's mighty. And then, wait, okay, Jezebel is still there. So, yes, there was definitely some some fear, but it was a real fear because God didn't always protect his prophet. Sometimes that was what you were called to do was die for his sake. Um, okay. So just for, just an application for us in general is right. whenever something great has happened, be extra diligent because it means that the devil is targeting you, he's targeting your thoughts especially. And so rein them in and, and remember to turn to God. Excellent point. 
Satan knows our, our, our hot buttons. Satan knows how to throw things our direction that we are not expecting. And there are often times when we have that high moment, that, that victory in Christ where, wow, that was such an amazing thing that just happened. Woohoo! High five. Let's, let's call this done. And, and we want to let our guard down. It's, it's natural. It's, it's a human behavior. And Satan knows how we behave as humans. And as soon as we start to relax, like you said, Elijah was tired. Elijah was, had just accomplished through God this amazing defeat of Baal. And he was like, whew, game, game over. This one's, this one's put to bed. I can relax now. And then this out of the blue, nope, I'm going to take you out just like I've taken out all the other prophets. That's exactly how Satan is going to work. He is going to find those moments where we've either come off of a victory or we're tired or we kind of just, we're not thinking about that particular threat. And he's going to throw that curveball our way and see how we respond to it. And for us, the hard part is knowing that God has always got our back. Yeah, so I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Romans uh, where it talks about if God is with us, who can be against us? Yes. But it doesn't mean that no one's going to be against us, right? It just means that we're going to be victorious, but sometimes it's easy for us to forget that when you see that opposition, like what uh, Abba was talking about there. So God's always got our back, but hmm, is that always the case? Does God always have our back? You just mentioned a good point. God, now this is, this is going to get kind of weird. God's prophets were being killed, and God had not stepped in and interceded on their behalf. And so there's a point where we go, hey, wait a minute. Um, has, has God got everybody's back all the time? The answer is yes, but in different ways. And so we have to sit back and go, hmm, what are things that I might have done that might get me on a less than perfect path with God? So I'm thinking that perhaps this is a matter, sort of like you were talking about the Sun Tzu thing uh, earlier. God will allow certain battles to be lost in this realm yes. in order to achieve, you know, the ultimate war is, is won. Exactly. So there are battles that will be won and fought. We are going to be learning the whole time. We are going to be trained on how to be Christians. What are some of the things that we do ourselves that might undermine our faith and our confidence in God's ability or God's willingness to do things on our behalf. Patience, okay. When we're impatient, when, when we see something that needs to be done and we say, hey, I need to jump in because I don't think God's got this. I need to step in for God and I need to do things that God, yes. try to help God out. Yes. So sometimes, you know, hey, I got to help God out because I, I'm seeing this going sideways and, and God hasn't really taken care of this yet, so I need to kind of give God a little hand here. What are some of the things that we do, what are some of the things that we do that undermine our confidence that God is there, that God is willing to do the things that we want him to do? Because, I mean, we've got a lot of cases where Israel wasn't exactly there with God. Okay, so when we're at that high point and we think, oh, we did such a great job, and then you think, oh, 
but I can do better. Like you think that like it's you that did it, not God. That did yeah. It. When we start taking credit for what God has done and we start thinking that it's me that did that and not what God had done. Yes. That becomes very challenging for us. But, How about we know what we're supposed to do and we do nothing. Ah, when we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do that thing. Okay. The Bible says make the most of every opportunity. So what happens when we do something we shouldn't have done? or we don't do what we should have done. What happens? Consequences, but how does that affect us mentally? How does it affect you when you know you messed up? What's that? Guilt, that's the word I'm looking for. Guilt is the thing that Satan uses to combine with fear to absolutely lay us flat. This kind of reminds me when I was in the army that uh, you know, I was a, a grunt nothing you know, level army person. And you know, we would always be thinking of what the plan was, uh, but we had no idea what the, you know, the big strategic thing was going on. We just had our own right. you know, little view of things. And it's the same way with us in terms of you know, what God is doing. You know, we have to be perfectly willing to be used by God, and if God is going to use us up as part of his plan, then that's what he's going to do. But, you know, we, we don't see that, you know, we're, you know, we're uh, two-dimensional beings in a, like, a three-dimensional world. We don't have that uh, view from the mountaintop like God does. Exactly. We don't have the view of how this is all going to play out. God knew exactly how this was going to play out, and he, and he knows what's going to play out in our lives. The challenge is we have to be willing to be used for what God wants in the strategic fight. There's a lot of times that you will see soldiers get into a tactical fight and they'll start to question, why am I here? What am I doing? What, what's the importance of it? We're getting absolutely annihilated on this hill. We've got like, of the whole troop of, of 10 men, we've lost five men and, and we don't see any benefit out of this. Why are we here? What's the purpose of us being on this hill? Not realizing that there's a thousand men trying to come up the hill to kill 50,000 men behind the hill, and those 10 soldiers right there are preventing that massacre from happening. And they don't see it at that point, but it's a huge battle that's going on, and we simply have to be willing to do what God wants us to do and be used as God wants us to be used. Come into the back. I just wanted to say we got to keep our morale high because if we start to think, why are we doing this? Why are we here? Why are we on this earth? Like we're supposed to be spraying God's word. We're not supposed to be here for ourselves. We got to think about, you know, how we can do things better, but not like we got to congregate here so that we can do better out there kind of thing. Yes. Come into the back. difference between thinking tactically and strategically yes tactically is how you win a fight strategically is how you win a war exactly and winning that war is what God has us going through we are going to face moments of doubt we're going to face moments of pain we're going to face those guilts and fears that are going to constantly nag at us through life but God is going to have us learn as we go through these just as you have a child learn not to touch things that are hot they have to experience that thing that's hot before they get that registered. Oh, that burns. 
I don't want to do that again. If a child never learned that things were hot, they would end up destroying their hands and, and their bodies because they wouldn't get away from things that were dangerous and heat. We as Christians have to learn Satan is going to be throwing a lot of things at us. And Satan is going to challenge us in ways that we're not prepared for. But as we move through those different scenarios, those different battles, those little tactical engagements, we're going to start to see the strategy that God has for us in his plan. If you think about it, Shadrach and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego knew the strategy. And they were willing to go through the fiery furnace because they knew that tactical fight that they were going to have in that fiery furnace was going to have massive strategic impact. Now, for anybody here, if somebody had a furnace burning so hot that standing within 20 feet of it would absolutely vaporize you, I'd be scared to death. I, I'm going to be thrown into that thing, and it's, I'm going to be instantly turned into like you know a, a carbon watch. I don't know if I would have the presence of mind to tell someone, it doesn't matter what happens when you throw me in there, whether I come out or not, God is still God, and he is still the God over you, and there is nothing you can do about it to change the fact that the God I serve is the God you will answer to one day. That's an amazing amount of faith, and that's the thing that God wants us to have. Come in the back. So one thing we have to watch out for, the, uh, the devil is very insidious. And when we are successful, we, that means us and God, we sometimes forget it's us and God. Yes. Like Patton got a little bit full of himself, started believing his own hype, and that's why he got in all the trouble, or part of the reason why he got in all the trouble that he did. Yep. So. We occasionally, well, we oftentimes want to take credit for the things that we have done because, well, we, pride is another issue. We, that's a different class. I don't, I don't want to steal too much thunder here. Pride are, th are some of the things that can help us fall victim to this, this trap that Satan has got lined up for us. And we think that Satan is kind of a one-trick pony, which he kind of is, but he's got little flavors of that one trick. Satan is always going to try to trip us in our own humanity. Satan is going to throw something at us that our human self is going to want to play with. It's like a cat with the laser light on the floor. We just... We're just drawn to this light, you know, and we want to play with it. Satan knows that's how we as humans are working. And that's how Satan wants to, us to think. And we want to trumpet our horn a little bit. And we want to take credit for our own things. What we have to do is mentally say, well, you know, God, I don't know what this is. My human self is afraid. My human self feels guilt. My human self feels fear. But I know you got this. And so I want you to energize the spiritual self that is in me. I believe, help my unbelief. That's the prayer that helps us get through this challenge where we're constantly trying to understand or rationalize what's, how do I play this small piece? How does that fit in the big picture of things? So how do we, how do we deal with guilt and prevent guilt from turning into this overwhelming fear that can ultimately be this tool that Satan causes us to become ineffective. How do we deal with guilt in this process? Any thoughts? Oh, somebody needs coffee. Okay, right here. Terry. Um, 
the best way to deal with that is is get forgiveness from God. Okay, there we go. That's the answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so how do we walk through getting forgiveness? What are the things that, that the Bible teaches us to, to deal with the guilt and fear? Hold, hold on just a second. Let me get a microphone to you. Piggyback on Carrie, trust in that forgiveness that the Lord gives you. Don't keep something alive that the Lord didn't already let go. Ah, don't not, keep something alive that God has already let go. Right. Not saying that you should just sin with impunity and go, oh, well, you know, Lord, turn that loose. So, I mean, don't not feel remorse about it, but don't keep something going that doesn't need to be kept going. Okay. I, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Fear can be generated by guilt. What is one of the things that keeps us from addressing our failures and exposing it to God and expressing it to God and saying, please forgive me for this? Pride, okay, pride's one, but again, that's a, that's a different lesson. Fear feeds off of guilt, but guilt feeds off of fear. There we go. There's that circle. I have fear because I am guilty of this thing, but I can't let go of the guilt of this thing because expressing it and confessing my sins to someone else, I am afraid of what they will think of me. Shame. It's that vicious cycle where I can't, I can't turn loose of this because I'm afraid this will happen, but, if I, it, but I'm afraid that's going to happen because I've got this thing going on over here. Comments? Yes. Um. Trusting in God's love and, and, and his grace in First John chapter 4 and verse uh, 16 through 19, I believe it says, okay. and we have come to know and to believe in the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in his love remains in God, and God remains in him. And in this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. And then it says, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. But the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. So I guess it all ties back into trusting God's love and, and allowing that love to overcome uh, our fear. Perfect love. Love answers everything. Here's my challenge. I want to be seen by my peers as a good person. I've got a comment from Quasi. We know God is love and he, yep. for, he forgives all the time. And as our brother said, we don't have to always allow things that God has forgiven to chase us to wherever we go. But in the other words, we should not also take God for granted for the fact that he forgives. So we do things that we like all the time and assume that he has forgiven us. Um, some people believe that, okay, because God is love, let me do whatever I want and God is love, so he's going to forgive me. The Bible always tells us that we should seek peace and always pursue it. Seeking peace and pursuing it, it means that you have to have peace with God all the time, if not most of the time. And also making sure you love your brother. 
and making sure that always you don't have any kind of like secret sin or like any kind of hate or anything within you. These are some of the things that causes us to fear, you know, because at the end of the day, you are not peaceful or you don't have peace with yourself and you don't have peace with God. So always you are, you are in conflict with God and you fear, you know, you lie, you hate, you don't love, you do so many things that makes you wonder whether you are a Christian, you know, so always seek peace and pursue it. Seeking peace and pursuing it means that you have to have peace with God and peace with man. Okay, so a whole lot of things there I want to unpack because you you talk like an entire sermon in five minutes. Good thoughts. Here's Here's where I want to go with that. First, brotherly love. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ is a key ingredient. We, we have to do that. But the challenge is, you mentioned peace. We can be at peace with God, and we can be confident that God loves us, but can you lie to another human being? Absolutely. I can lie to people, and I can kind of build that. And I start thinking of other people in that relationship. I can lie to you, and... and I can pretend to have peace and I can pretend to have love when I'm not there. It's not genuine. Can I lie to God? Nope. Can I pretend with God? Nope. Can I fake it with God? Nope. We start humanizing the relationship we have with each other and we start projecting that human relationship up to who we have with God. Somebody can lie to me just like I can lie to them. And because of that, I start having this doubt. I start having this fear that maybe they're not all that. Maybe they're not all that into me because I'm not all that into them. God's all that in with us. God's 100% with us. There is absolutely nothing preventing God's love from us. I mean, he, He has expressed His love to us in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. That should burn away all of the fears and all of the wispy trails that Satan keeps whispering in our ear saying, oh, no, oh, no, 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 you don't have peace. This peace is not true. God's lying to you. You need to fear God just like you fear your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because God can lie to you. That is the ultimate killjoy that Satan tries to get us to believe, is that God is not there for us. And there is nothing further from the truth. Let me add this to it. In Isaiah chapter 59, it says that God's hands are not shortened, that he cannot save. Neither is he heavy, that he cannot hear. But our iniquities are always separating us from the Lord. So all that I'm saying is, don't let us assume that God is love and the deepest love that he has cannot be separated from us. Let us always put away iniquities, things that will separate us from the Lord, because um, the Lord is holy. And if you try not to be holy and always assuming that, okay, I can do whatever I want. I can be unrighteous. I can be unholy. I can be untruthful. I can be anything. But because God's love is always there, he's going to love me. That is true. But why do you take God for granted for all these areas? Okay. That is probably the biggest challenge that we have is knowing that I can be human, knowing that I can be imperfect, but I can be loved by a perfect God. I can be accepted by a perfect God, even though I am imperfect. I will never measure up to what God wants me to be. 
And that's the fear that Satan wants to play on us. You have messed up. You are not strong enough. You can't do this. You can't stand up to Jezebel, and you have to run. We don't have to do that. Coming yeah, back. Yeah, he does this thing where he tempts us to sin, and then using a, a sin, he tempts us, he uses self-doubt. Like, we don't know, you know, oh, you, you did this. How dare you, you know? And it's like, it's just a cycle. you sinning, then doubting, and then... Exactly. And that's the cycle that Satan wants us to, to be in and to never be able to get out of. Even when we have, even when we saw Elijah being the champion, Satan found a way to circle around and and cause Elijah to have doubt and fear. Was it legitimate fear? Probably, but it caused Elijah to behave in a way that Elijah started to doubt himself. And Elijah found himself and prayed to God and said, "Lord, what do I do about this? I need help." And that is how we can get out of the cycle. Ian just mentioned, we can get out of that cycle by saying, Lord, I, 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 I can't go left, I can't go right, I don't know which way to go, I am stuck. I'm caught, in this, I'm caught in this loop. This fear that is in me has blinded me to what you want me to see. Help me overcome this fear. Help me get rid of this guilt. Help me get out of this mess that I am trapped into. Because Satan is going to do everything he can to try to prevent God from helping you see what God wants you to see. And as long as we put those blinders on, as long as we live in that cave of fear and doubt, we're not going to be able to see all of the wonderful help that God is providing for us. God's ready to do amazing things with us and through us. We just have to drop this, this weight called fear and guilt. Those are two things that we're holding on to, that Satan wants us to hold on to. We need to let go and let God come into the back. Yeah, good, good thoughts. I'm uh, thinking of the way to express it. it. It seems to me that if we can't acknowledge that we're all human and fallible, and we can't acknowledge that God is all powerful and gave us Christ in order that we could be redeemed, then this fear and doubt is really just a way of saying we're, we're denying Christ. Yes. And the easiest way to not deny Christ is to say, I need Christ. I need Christ every day. I need Christ every hour. I need God's help to help me be more than I am. I need God's help to be who I want to be. Because if I let myself do things, I am going to make mistakes. And being human with each other is opening up. There's a sign language for vulnerable. One of the ways of saying vulnerable is, is to show the broken knees, meaning that, that there's a, a defect. There's another sign for vulnerable, which means opening up. I, I expose myself to you. By exposing ourselves to each other and showing our own humanity to each other, we're able to deny Satan the opportunity to say, your humanity is a failure. No, my humanity is what God made me. I am who God made, and I won't relish in that because I am fallible, but I will be better than that because through Christ, I can do all things. Okay, we're at time. I appreciate the comments. Uh, this lesson went a little different than I intended, but it's okay because I, I, I love teaching these particular lessons because the comments drive so much of where this class is going, and I, and I get so much out of it. But again, thank you very much for
the comments and the thoughts. Uh, I believe we wrap up next week, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, next week we'll wrap up, and uh, we'll see how the comments go then. But till then, I appreciate it, and you have a great and blessed Sunday. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Brother Allen.